ever had the feeling you're destined to do something big, but you weren't sure what, because maybe it has never existed yet? You are in the right place. This is the Pagan Monastery Podcast, and I'm your host, Danica Boyce. We know by now what we don't want, so let's start building the traditions, the rituals, and the sacred places that we do want. I believe that with clarity of purpose and love, we can do absolutely anything together. On this podcast, you'll find heaps of inspiration for touching into your innately abundant nature while you follow and help create the unfolding story of how, together, we established the first pagan monastery in Europe. It's coming. We deserve it. So let's get building. Hello. Welcome to the Pagan Monastery Podcast. I'm Danica Boyce. It is April 5th as I'm recording this. And April is the month that a lot of goddess of the dawn folklore and paganism emerges across Europe, and especially Western Europe. In Old English, we know from the chronicler Bede that the month of April was called Eostromonath, and he notes that this is because this was the month that pagans celebrated the goddess Eostra. And we don't know much else about who this Eostra was, may have been a singular regional phenomenon, but her name is echoed in the dawn goddesses of the rest of Indo-European languages. So we have Eos in Greece, we have Austra in Latvia, Aushrene in Lithuania, Aurora in Latin, and all of these names share the same Indo-European root, which means shining or a light, specifically the light of dawn. So this goddess Eostra is very likely a goddess of the dawn, and she happens to be the only one with a month named after her in the year. But it makes a lot of sense to me that her month would be in the early year, because that is the parallel of the cycle, the whole year cycle of the sun, of the early dawn. And so across April and this period of time in general, in many, many places in Europe, there is folklore that remains to the present day that makes a lot of reference to early dawn, to morning stars, that is Venus, the first star to appear in the morning, and to the rising of the sun in particular. There's an incredibly widespread piece of folklore in Europe that the sun dances at dawn on Easter morning as it rises. And so in many places, people would climb to the top of a hill on Easter morning to watch the sun rising and see if it will dance for them. And this is a myth that goes back to India, goes back to Hindu mythology, and is described in the Vedas, in the Rig Veda specifically. There are several hymns dedicated to the goddess of the dawn, who is called Ushas. And you can probably detect the similarity between those other figures, Eos, Aushrene, Eostra, etc., and this goddess of the dawn. And there's so much that spreads all over Europe related to this figure and this folklore that emerges in April. And there's something really lovely about the imagery of like pink and red of first light and also the connections to the beginning of the world itself. She is 
the bringer of life out of darkness. She is not to be underestimated. And I know that a lot of the documentation of dawn goddess mythology says that she didn't have a specific cult of the god so that there wasn't necessarily a group of people or a, a body of worship to her because she was considered more of like a general concept or a more abstract. But it doesn't really seem true to me, given the amount of hymns directed specifically to her in the Vedas and the body of folklore. It could just be that she's considered such a large scale goddess. You know, she is associated with the sun itself, which is like 109 times the size of the earth. So it's epic massiveness can sometimes not really be measured. And there is a typical trend in scholarship over the last several decades of paganism to diminish the importance of feminine gods, to call them more minor or an aspect of something else, or to make claims that they had no cult of their own, etc. So the energy of this dawn goddess figure as she appears through time is just so large and so encompassing and the details of her personality tend to be that kind of um, the origin of life, epic statements like that. She has this absolute dependability and regularity about her. She shows up every day. She is so consistent no matter what happens, no matter how dark it gets. The dawn always arrives and the dawn always arrives with freshness and beauty and softness and the sun. The dawn literally brings the sun. And so that is the the great multitude of meanings and the bigness of what's happening in the folklore and the pagan history around April. It is the coming of life itself back into the embodied physical world that is encompassed in a lot of folklore about budding branches as well. You'll see all around Europe um, in early spring, earlier than right now, there will be people beating each other with 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 twigs and sticks, throwing water on one another in I think this is a Polish tradition specifically, but young people striking one another with the symbols of renewed life is one part of this folklore as well. This this renewal of fertility and the blush of circulation and the waters of the ocean that the sun rises out of in glory and refreshment. This is what's going on right now behind the scenes and in the stories and the songs and just the atmosphere. We can all see this when we leave our houses and we see dew on the grass, which people have said was the keys to the gates of the dawn that was dropped by the nighttime that the dawn goddess picks up and opens the door for the sun to arise. We can see it in that pink color in the sky that you sometimes see when the sun is rising. And it used to be said in the Vedas that the dawn goddess drives a herd of red cows or pink cows across the sky. And later she was said to ride in a chariot with red horses. So the energy of the dawn goddess is all around us. And I don't think that it is to be ignored. (laughs) I think that it is incredibly powerful. And if you're interested in getting more of these really specific examples and details and some, some of these hymns that you can hear yourself and how they filtered through folklore all the way across to North America as well, from India through Europe, 
you can listen to my episode that I made at this time last year when I was in Montenegro, and you can click the link in the show notes to listen to that one. It's a Fair Folk podcast episode. But for the meantime, I'm going to take that broad energy that's happening right now, and I'd like to apply it in a couple of examples and give you a really personal handle that's been occurring to me over the last few days of a way that you can feel this in your life in a way that you can tangibly hold on to it as an actionable and embodied option in your life. Because I know when we talk about mythology and folklore and the gods, it all does start to sound a little abstract, a little bit fantastical. And I just want to remind you, especially in this month with this goddess that is almost too big to be seen, that it is just the materials of our actual daily seasonal life and cycles on the earth that produces the gods. The gods are just innate in everything. They're one way of bracketing the things that we're experiencing in our environment, in our bodies, in the plants and animals around us. There's nothing abstract about them. We just get to abstract them and play around with their symbols to tell stories, to remind us of how they've always been here and are here right inside of us. So I remembered recently a book that I read about 10 years ago when I was an undergrad and I was taking a course in mysticism and Christianity and mysticism and gender specifically. So women's mysticism. And I got to read a lot of really interesting texts about women mystics and saints and how they were framed specifically in medieval society. Women tended to be over-associated with the body and embodiment. So often their religious expression would be framed in that way in the books that were written about them or the books that they dictated themselves. And a particular book has been coming to mind recently, kind of mysteriously, and I had a sense that it was connected with the dawn goddess and April somehow, but I couldn't really put my finger on it until today when I was walking for an hour and a half on my way to the podcast studio. I wanted to let the ideas that I had that were filtering around connect. And so I'm going to explain to you how they connect in a moment. But this book that I remembered is called The Book of Marjorie Kemp. And Marjorie Kemp was a woman in the 14th and 15th century who was married. And she had ultimately 14 children with her husband, John. And when she had her first child with him, shortly after she gave birth, she had postpartum depression, and she started seeing visions of demons all around her, tormenting her. And that vision, that torturous vision came to an end with a revelation, a vision of Jesus Christ. And the meaning that she made from this vision that she had was that she was called to devote her life to focus on, and meditation on Jesus, on the Christian religion and on God, and ideas of love and to meditate on the suffering of Jesus was something that she frequently felt called to do. And of course, Marjorie Kemp had this vision with her first child, but she had another 13 before she was able to put her foot down and make a decision about wishing to live a different kind of life than being a housewife, when that was not her specific calling. And she was really lucky to be able to negotiate with her husband and I think some legal entity to enter a chaste marriage, that is to, to stop having sex with her husband and to become like a nun. 
but within the confines of her marriage. So she continued to be supported by her husband and a part of her own family, but she didn't have any longer a legal obligation to engage in sexual activity and bear more children. This life transformation of hers is somewhat of a side note. This is part of the story. But what I want to bring up really specifically is two points about her. Number one, Marjorie Kemp wrote the first autobiography in English. Not the first autobiography in English by a woman, the first autobiography in English at all. She did something totally unprecedented, and she did it with great enthusiasm several years after this spiritual transformation that she describes. And what brought on this spiritual transformation was initially this vision she had that let her know about her calling. But what really made her stand out and also made her incredibly unpopular with particular authorities and other people that she encountered on pilgrimage, etc., was the fact that she had this really surprising tendency, sometimes when she entered a church, but also whenever she was contemplating the suffering of Jesus on the cross, she would burst into loud, passionate, messy, boisterous weeping. She would go into passions of grief and letting tears flow in very public ways that people were often suspicious of. And she was tested in that at one point. Some people sent her to a church alone to see if she would still do it if no one was watching. And she did, of course. And I think there's something really fascinating about that aspect of her, specifically in light of this April folklore and mythology, the sense of the dawn goddess. First of all, because she is an initiator of a new form of literature, and it took a lot of bravery because there is so much against women in the Middle Ages producing writing, producing knowledge. She was not literate, she couldn't read, and she dictated her book to a male scribe. And she was often tested on her biblical knowledge to make sure that she was, in fact, following the scripture, even while she was not supposed to have access to the text themselves. And she always passed those tests. There's one really funny story about how she meets the archbishop when she fell on her knees in front of him. He said roughly to her, why do you weep so, woman? And she said, sir, you shall wish some day that you had wept as sorely as I. She's quite, quite bold in her response to questioning that she receives. And she knows in her being that what she's doing is right for her. It's the fact, in addition to her innovation and her willingness to step into a role that she'd never seen modeled in her life, as far as I can tell, to become a pilgrim, to become devoted after having lived a full life in a different identity previously. She had 14 children. If this isn't evidence that it's never too late to follow your calling, in fact, it might be exactly the right time, then I don't know what is. But not only is she an innovator, there's something really specific about the way that her devotion appears that I want to speak to right now at this moment in history, this April 2022. Because I've been noticing as much as there's this sense of freshness at Easter, it is also a, a transition period between two seasons. It is 
the dawn of the year, but the dawn of the day is also a time of transition out of darkness and into light. It is not fully lit. The dawn star that you see in the sky might be hard to discern in that pale blue morning time. It isn't a bright shining beacon that is obvious to everyone. We still are in many ways in the darkness of the year. For example, this morning I woke up and it was snowing and there was a fresh frost, even though it felt like spring was supposed to quote unquote already be here. I noticed in a lot of places, people have been experiencing a late snow for their climate. And it's a very difficult time to be aware of the news. And I've been feeling personally a lot of sadness for what's happening in Ukraine, the horrific situation there and the losses that are happening in real time right now that are almost impossible to understand from the outside and that many of us feel very closely affected by. Marjorie Kemp's example was someone who felt so strongly that something was coming to her, that there was a calling for her, that that she needed something. And the way that she expressed it was not through, you know, barreling forward in, in confidence and optimism only. It was in expressing this deep grief that she was feeling. In fact, her devotion never changed out of this expression of grief, because we can live entire lifetimes, we can live generations without expressing who we really desire to be in the world. And that is a very heavy grief. And to witness other people's lives being lost and other people's potential being snipped in the bud and the harms that many of us know better than perpetuated today, that is not something to be swept under the rug or forgotten. It's not just material for moral indignation which is something I see a lot of and I can understand, but is somewhat of a self-protective mechanism. If we really let ourselves feel what comes up when we witness suffering that reminds us of our own suffering and the suffering that is innate in the human experience, that's going to cause tears. That's going to cause real, genuine grief. It's a spring that connects to a deeper water system of sadness and sadness potential that is innate in the earth itself. It is part of this great cycle of life and death, and it deserves to be felt. Your grief is sacred, and I believe that it is a clue to the opening that you require to move toward your calling. So this Marjorie Kemp story reminded me of times that I was unsure of where I wanted to go in my life, but there would be a glimmer, there would be some, you know, little sparkle at the edge of things that would call to me and show itself, not just in excitement, but often in tears. So when I go into, much like Marjorie Kemp, and this is why it really stood out to me, when I go into a beautiful historical building that has had much love and reverence poured into it, where people have worshipped or lived or made beautiful things or shared song, I often, especially if there's music involved, I often begin to weep. And it is a combination of feeling the grief of not having had access to those things 
earlier in my life or perhaps in past generations as well. Um, and also a relief of having that now. It's an opening that allowed me to see that there was something I was missing. And I think this is really an important thing to be aware of when you're when you're crafting your unique destiny. And it doesn't you can be an absolute beginner at this, or you can be well along the path of self-actualization, however you see yourself in your story right now. Your sadness, the things that you don't have yet, and the, the lack or the loss that you don't even know how to articulate because you have not seen an example of it in your lifetime, or you maybe haven't read an example of it before, or you haven't seen someone like you living that way. That is a sacred grief. That is a sadness that tells you about what you are here to build. I think we often get confused about our desires because we don't always see them as a positive. We don't always see what we are building. And we, we can't always see what we're building because it often, like I said, it doesn't exist yet. I didn't know that I was growing up preparing myself to become a podcaster when I was younger, you know, when I talked too much in school, when I read so many books, when I was so interested in the radio, I had no idea what I was being prepared for. And I couldn't have because it just wasn't there until I built myself toward it and it built itself toward me. I love this idea that when you're building a bridge, the other side is building itself to meet you. You just can't see it yet, but you can trust that it's on its way. But you wouldn't know to begin building the bridge if you hadn't felt the desire for the other shore, if you hadn't felt the loneliness that comes from not being there yet. And I suffered a lot when I was younger from being different, from being seen as not very smart because I was diagnosed with ADD. I wasn't paying much attention in class. I was kind of awkward, didn't know how to do the things that socially that other people were supposed to do for one reason or another. I felt very sad and I felt like I didn't belong in the world. And I think that that's something that a lot of my peers or a lot of people that connect with my work also feel, the sense that you belong in another time or something like that. It's a sense of existential loneliness, basically, or a feeling of displacement. And I think that as long as we think of it as a problem with us, that we haven't yet allowed ourselves to access the fact that it is a space of great potential. It is a moment that we can step into this, this empty space that we are called to fill with what we are going to build now. We don't need to know where we're going to wind up. We just need to know what is pulling with a golden thread on our guts. <laughs> just one next step forward. When you start to believe in the thing that you haven't seen yet and believe that you deserve to have and create and share it, that's when you start to see these little pieces of evidence for it in the world. I hadn't thought about making a podcast about folklore because I didn't know folklore existed. I didn't know podcasts existed. I wasn't born knowing that I wanted to establish a pagan monastery because both of those concepts were not ready, made, connected for me. And I think, again, I love to reference Harry Potter in this podcast because I feel like it was just such a moment when those books came out for people, when they started realizing, this is the thing that I always wanted, someone to tell me, you've always been magical, and a place to go to be magical with other people. 
But that didn't happen automatically. Someone had to work for years to put those ideas together. And actually, something came up for me just earlier today in reference to this. If you enjoyed the Harry Potter books and you want more of a similar kind of vibe, but from many years previous, I would highly recommend Ursula Le Guin's book, A Wizard of Earthsea, which is what uh, many people have claimed J.K. Rowling drew on. So just really what I want to share with you today in this podcast episode is a invitation, an encouragement to notice and honor the areas of your life where you show up and you feel like weeping and to give those moments as much space as they desire to hold them up as moments of clarity, of opening, moments of the early dawn just before it becomes light. They are part of the natural cycle of emergence, of rebirth. And if you can be in those moments with your full presence, then you will be awake, you will be aware, and you will be watching when the sun rises and dances in front of you, because you'll know how to see it with an open and clear honest heart. So I ask you, what is sparkling at the edges of your perception right now? What is the single star in the pale blue dawn sky that calls to you just today? Is there an indescribable melancholy that you've been carrying around? And what kinds of experiences tip the spout of that, of that well into tears or possibly laughter there is nothing wrong with how you feel. There is nothing wrong with feeling like you don't fit in the modern world. But I want to offer it to you as a gift, as a calling, as a door that you can walk through into presence and out of lack. I want to offer you the insight that your special grief is not your unique burden or curse it is instead the early morning voice of your sacred calling. You do belong here, and all of the sensations and preconditions of your being and the experiences that you've had can be fuel for what you want to do next. There is never a wrong time. It is never too early or too late. You're always at some point in an eternal and unending, ever-refreshing cycle that is the rising of the great and glorious sun and the coming of the inevitable, renewing, life-giving springtime. Thank you so much for listening today. If this episode touched or inspired you, it would mean a great deal to me if you rated and positively reviewed it and you shared it on social media, email, or regular old snail mail. Your support is invaluable to this project. If you want to connect with me further, you can find me on Instagram at danica.voice, or you can email the podcast and the Pagan Monastery project directly at paganmonastery at gmail.com. Thank you to Gadus Marqua Ensemble for the opening theme music to the Pagan Monastery podcast. Have a great day, and I'll talk to you soon.